thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome, everybody, to this week's edition of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm delighted to have you with me. And I'm going to follow up on last week and give some specific examples of why what I covered last week is so important in this area of law and public policy. Now, for those who may not have heard last week's program or just now new to the program, I was talking about the nature of religion, as the term was used by Abraham Kuyper, and not in the sense of the historical study of the development of religions, and the questions that he raised in the lectures that he gave to Princeton Seminary in 1898 as fundamental to restoring a theocentric worldview. And I want to briefly touch on that and then put it in the context of some things that I've read in the paper just in the last week. Specifically, what he was talking about was whether religion was for the sake of man, egoistic is what he called it, or it was for the sake of God. And I spoke of it in terms of a subjective versus an objective view of Christianity. Subjective meaning the view of Christianity from that of the subject or the person or me, the ego, or from the perspective of God. And he said that this question and how we answer it then affects three other questions that we will eventually also look at. Now, if you want to follow along with some of this, you can find what I'm reading from at monergism.com. Search for Abraham Kuyper, or Kuyper, K-U-Y-P-E-R, Lectures on Calvinism. He was speaking to uh, the Princeton Seminary, which was at the time the leading theological training ground in the United States. And what happened in the last couple of days that drove home to me, that I hope will drive home to you, the importance of understanding the difference between a subjective view of Christianity and an objective view of Christianity was the fact that Senator Roy Blunt from Missouri is a graduate of Southwest Bible Seminary in Missouri. He was the president of that Baptist University for four years, and yet he voted for the Respect for Marriage Act in Congress that said marriage for federal law purposes will be any two people as recognized by the states. So this Christian person was accepting that it is okay for civil law to reflect that which is not true according to God's creational ordinances and the very nature of what it means to be human and in being made human, made male and female. It's okay if man's law does not correspond in any way to God's creational ordinances. Now, what struck me since then was an article that I read, and I checked it out to make sure it was correct, where Walter Kim, who is 
the head of the National Association of Evangelicals and Ed Stetzer were encouraging members of Congress, some Republicans, to support the Respect for Marriage Act because it offered the opportunity for a common sense solution to contentious social issues in a way that protected religious liberty. Now, if those names are not familiar to you, just so that you don't think I'm bashing, you know, the Baptist by mentioning Roy Blunt, Walter Kim, who is the president, served as pastor for 15 years at Boston's historic Park Street Presbyterian Church and four years at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is a PCA church. And he got his MDiv from Regent College in Vancouver. Now, Ed Stetzer's a little bit of a different animal. He's a professor and dean at Wheaton College. He's now taking some time away. I think he's over in Oxford. But he also serves there at Wheaton College as the executive director of the Billy Graham Center. Prior to that, he was the executive director of Lifeway Research. So whether you're a Baptist or a Presbyterian, whatever ilk or stripe you may identify with, you may find that some of their leaders have a subjective rather than objective view of Christianity. I want to get into explaining that further and why a subjective view of Christianity would allow a person in good conscience to support a definition of marriage that is in conflict with human nature as created by God. So I'm going to turn again to what Abraham Kuyper wrote in regard to subjective theology, subjective Christianity. And here's what he says, and then I'm going to develop it and then tie it back to the lobbying efforts of these two men. Kuyper writes, a subjective religion is one that exists for the sake of man. It's a religion fostered for man's sake, aiming at his safety, his liberty, his elevation, and partly also at his triumph over death. He goes on to say, even when a religion of this kind has developed itself into monotheism, so now we're starting to speak in the language of Christianity. He goes from animism, you know, on up to the polytheism, now to monotheism. He says, the God whom it worships remains invariably a God who exists in order to help man, in order to secure good order and tranquility for the state, to furnish assistance and deliverance in time of need, or to strengthen the nobler and higher impulse of the human heart in its ceaseless struggle with the degrading influences of sin. Now, since he's speaking here about monotheism, he's talking about the Judaic, the Islamic, and the Christian faiths, Christian religions. They're all monotheistic, right? And he said, so even when you're talking monotheism, maybe the monotheism in the Southern Baptist Church, maybe the monotheism of the Presbyterian Church in America, it can still be a religion that is subjective in its character. And he goes on and makes this observation about the eventual effect that subjective theology, rather than objective theology, theology for the sake of God, Christianity for the sake of God, has. And here's what he says. The consequence of this, referring to subjective, person-oriented, man-oriented monotheism, is that all such religion thrives in time of famine and pestilence. 
It flourishes among the poor and oppressed, and it expands among the humble and the feeble, but it pines away in the days of prosperity. It fails to attract the well-to-do. It is abandoned by those who are more highly cultured. As soon as the more civilized classes enjoy tranquility and comfort, and by the progress of science feel more and more delivered from the pressures of the cosmos, they throw away the crutches of religion, and with a sneer at everything holy go stumbling forward on their own poor legs. And in those words you can hear Marx, the crutch. Christianity is a crutch for the poor and the feeble, right? You can hear in it the overtones of the warning that was given by Moses to the people of Israel, that when you go in the land and, and you inherit all this wealth and cities you didn't build and, and, and things are good, you're, you're going to forget God if you don't remember that you exist for the sake of God and that all things come from God, through God, and are to be directed back to God, Romans 11.36. Kuiper continues, This is the fatal end of egoistic religion. What I've just described, throwing off the crutches of religion, sneering at the holy, stumbling on our own poor legs, that is what subjective theology ends up with being. It becomes, he says, superfluous and disappears as soon as the egoistic interests are satisfied. Oh, got over my drug problem. Uh, eventually, you know, maybe I didn't need God so much as I thought. I'm doing this pretty well. I got out of this financial hardship, and I'm, I'm making things okay. You, you, you see? What he's saying here, once the egoistic interests are satisfied, maybe God's not as necessary as we thought. He makes this statement. This was the course of religion among all non-Christian nations in earlier times. And here's his sober warning. And the same phenomenon is repeating itself in our own country among nominal Christians of the higher, more prosperous, and more cultured classes of society. Now, that last little phrase is really, really important. And I'm going to put some historical context to it that will help you understand better, I believe, what a subjective, egoistic theology Christianity is and how that, I believe, has affected the thinking of persons like Setzer and Blunt and Dr. Kim. To run through a little quick history here, during the time of the Reformation, the German Reformation, the English Reformation, uh, the Protestant Reformation, the issue of authority became critical. What was the authority? If it wasn't just the church, if it was just the Bible, if it was just man's conscience, then, then what was authority? And that's where Descartes, in, in a well-intentioned way, says, well, I, I need to get to something foundational from which I can work to determine what's true, and ultimately he came up with, I think, therefore, I am. Now, beginning to root things in man's reason, his subjective reason, which is what I mean here, his own reasoning capabilities, eventually you have Immanuel Kant come along, and he says, you know, we can apply human reason to things in the natural realm, but we, we can't be certain that reason, as we apply it in the natural realm, applies to the supernatural realm. We don't really have any direct content or revelation from that that we can trust, and so, uh, but we have to make it on in this world, right? We have to build rocket ships and houses, and we have to, 
you know, plant gardens and all those things. And we, we, we can know things in the natural realm, but, but we can't assume that that would translate into the supernatural realm. Well, that's the, the enlightenment takes birth. Man's reason is sufficient to at least understand the phenomenal world and make our way through it without crashing and burning. That began to make Christianity despised by the cultured in our society. We don't need it anymore, right? Not to get along in this world. There may be some other world and maybe we need need it for that, but but not for anything we do here that is significant, of value, of importance. And so along comes a guy named Friedrich Schleimacher, and he published a book in 1799, okay, called On Religion, Lectures or Speeches to the Cultured Despisers. So when Kuiper is talking about the religion goes away among the more prosperous and cultured class of society, that's what he's talking about. So here he is in 1898 saying Schleimacher in 1799 has led the way. I didn't say that right. So, so what Kuiper is saying is that Schleimacher in 1799 paved the way for the subjective theology that Kuiper was speaking about in 1898 and was trying to urge the seminarians to say, you have to get religion, Christianity, restored to its premise that it is about God for the sake of God that has consequences for man, certainly. But God is the root, the foundation, the predicate for all of the Christian religion. Schleimacher is actually described as the, quote, father of modern theology. I'm just reading from a lecture that I found about him. And it notes here that he was heavily influenced by Immanuel Kant. It was what I was just talking about, right? And the person says that Schleimacher proceeded on two key assumptions. The first is that classical arguments for the existence of God are unhelpful. And, and that goes back to what Kuiper said, I've mentioned in previous episodes, that he says apologetics has not advanced the kingdom of God, Christianity, Protestantism, one whit. Proving the existence of God is is not really helpful. Now, that's what we think we need to do all the time now. We need to learn apologetics. But saving faith is not mere human reason. It is a gift of God, as it says in Ephesians. We are at an enmity with God. We are opposed to God. We will not reason ourselves to God. That's what 1 Corinthians is all about. The wisdom of man never attained to the knowledge of who God is, maybe to the existence of God, but so what? That's meaningless. A God that has no objective character or quality that I can know, only that which I subjectively impose on God? How is that helpful? This is the second thing that Schleimacher assumed was the Kantian account of knowledge, namely that religion is beyond the institution, the Bible, and doctrine. Religion is found within. So as soon as you say that, you have developed a subjective religion. You look inside yourself for how do I feel about this? And that's what Schleimacher said. He says at the heart of religion is this sense of our dependence on God. 
Well, it's great that we have a sense of dependence on God, but that doesn't tell us who God is, how we know God, his attributes, his qualities, his characters, the purposes of God in creation. It leaves us as pagan as we were before. In fact, Slarmarker didn't really even know what to make of the Holy Spirit because he, he couldn't figure out what role he really played in it. So, so religion, beginning in 1799, let's say, with Slarmacher being explicated by Kuiper 100 years later, is now subjective in totality, looking on the inside, how I think, how I feel. Oh, man, and I've even been to some Christian counselors who are saying, how does that feel in your gut? Well, sometimes my gut doesn't know what to feel. That's the problem, you know? That's, that's as unhelpful as could be, and I quit going. But that was a Christian counselor being offered as a ministry of the church. Interestingly, a charismatic church, which is based on a lot, emotion, feeling, what's going on inside of me, rather than allowing the objective that's outside of me to stir what's inside of me. I have to have the right kind of music and the right kind of lights and the right kind of graphics and the right kind of environment. I mean, it's impossible to believe that Paul and Silas were actually praying and praising God in prison, right? Because they didn't have any of those nice things that we have to set the mood so we can experience God. Uh, yes, we experience God, but we're called to know God. And in knowing God, we then experience God. We've got the subjective taking the place of the objective. So what that now means is that there are Christians who can say, well, what we do with the body is not that important. The body is an objective thing. It's how we feel in our relationship with and And you know what, my friends? This is what, throughout the history of the church, would be called the heresy of Gnosticism. That it's some kind of special knowledge, some sort of special feeling that is divorced from matter and from the body. And you know, the Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, wait a minute, you're joining yourself to temple prostitutes? Do you understand what kind of person you are? Do you understand that the body is important? It's the temple of God. How can you join the temple of God with a temple prostitute? I mean, what, what subjective theology leads to is Gnosticism. It leads to heresy. It leads to saying that all that matters is the soul of man. And if all that matters is the soul of man, do you have any wonder why we no longer talk about the final judgment and the resurrection of the body? Because it doesn't matter anymore. As long as the soul flies towards heaven, we need no resurrection of the body because we're Gnostics. We deprecate, we depreciate the body and what the body does. Oh, my friends, does it not just flabbergast you that leading voices within both the Southern Baptist Convention and Presbyterian Church in America, you can say, well, they're not the leading voices. They're the minority voices. But they ought to be put on heresy trials and removed so that they no longer represent a theology that exists strictly for the sake of man, for a Gnostic soul and spiritual and internal experience of God. That's what's going on. That's, that's why we don't know how to speak to these things as Christians, because we're either unsure of having an objective theology, 
or we're afraid that we're going to turn people away from a soul salvation because we're talking about their body. And, uh, and let's not do that because the body and what the body does isn't that important. But you know what? All these, these folks will eventually turn around and say, well, no, it, it really does matter what you do with your body. Well, how could that be if you're going to support this act that, that says bodies are irrelevant to what it means to be male and female? And they, and they can protest, as, as I think uh, Dr. Kim did, that, well, I'm not saying I support the bill. I'm trying to support religious liberty. But what religious liberty exists when there is no objective God who has objectively determined the meaning and the purpose of everything that he's created, and we say it's fine that we disregard that. How could a Christian say at any point that it is fine that human beings disregard the given nature of we have from God and how it's supposed to operate? Doesn't that lead to their death? Doesn't it lead to their lack of flourishing as a human being? Do we not care about that, Dr. Kim? That it's okay to live in, in the degradation of sin, to not be what we were created to be, to live as fully human beings, both in soul and body? We, we want to just protect ourselves while we allow you to espouse without opposition of beliefs and doctrines that undergird law that lead to your eternal destruction? Is that loving my neighbor? I, I don't see that. Now, I'm sure people would listen to what I've said today and say, well, you hate people. You're hateful. But look, if, if I believe in the God that is objectively who the Scripture reveals himself to be, it is hateful to not tell people that, to not tell them that we have a given nature expressed as male and female, and we operate and function best in that objective cosmology that has within it an objective anthropology, both of which are rooted in who God is and what he's done. So see, when we lose objective theology, when the focus becomes man, my needs, meeting my needs, what God does for me, rather than what God does that has consequences for me, we wind up with a subjective theology that allows us to repudiate the creation, repudiate human nature, and not speak to what is really at the heart of the gospel, which is God, and to know God. And we allow people to go away with a false knowledge of who they are, rather than say, we're made in the image of God, every one of us. And the highest privilege that any person has is to give expression to the image of God when, as a male, I reflect what it means to be a man, or as a woman, what it reflects to be a woman. And that's why this objective theology versus subjective theology is so important. And subjective theology is rampant in about every Protestant evangelical flavor there is. It's a look inward at myself and how I feel about God and doctrine goes away, and truth goes away, and Christianity goes away. Now, the good news is Christianity won't ever go away because it is rooted in the covenant of God, the covenant, the eternal covenant between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
being worked out in space and time. And we've covered that in the last series that I did. So it cannot go away, Christ having fulfilled the covenant, secured the covenant, he will finish fulfilling the covenant, and we can rest on that because God is faithful to himself. See, even there, it's all about God. It's not because he's faithful to me, though he is. He's faithful to me because he's faithful to himself and the covenant made within the eternal triune God that respects the salvation of man and the restoration of his whole creation. Next week, I hope you'll join me as we begin to look at one of the other questions Kuiper asked, which is this. Can religion remain partial in its operation or must it embrace the whole of our personal being and existence? I think you'll find some of the things Kuiper says in response to that very interesting and very telling. And I hope you'll join me for next week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's FACTennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.